big jock had to calm us down at half-time because we all had a wee go at the referee in the tunnel. Then the second half came and we really pounded them. We really took total command of the game. And when would you ever see a team whose right back passes it across 18-yard line and then in comes the left back and smacks it into the net? But that's what's happened. And Tommy did it so often in those days. He really scored a lot of very important goals outside here. A tremendous shot. And when he stuck that one away, then I knew... I knew the game was ours for the taking. And obviously when Stevie got an end of Bobby Murdoch's shot from outside the box and flicked it past the goalkeeper, then the trophy was for us. And that was something that, I can't say it was prepared, but we, we did it quite a lot. Big Jock believed that if there was a crowded penalty area, knock it back just outside the box. And we had boys like Tommy and, and Bobby Murdoch who could come in and strike the ball brilliantly. And that was it. That was... Uh, the cup for us. This is a bit that I've still got difficulty in remembering exactly how I felt. I've seen it in film. I've seen it in film often, and I try, I'm trying to recreate, recreate it all the time, but, but I can never ever just, I think my emotions were so high that, uh, and everything we had was, was so exciting at this particular time. I don't know how I got over that moat, to be quite frank with you. And then coming up here, I was looking, in actual fact, to see the wives, but uh, I was looking for them, I couldn't see them at this stage. The response from the fans, it was absolutely fabulous. They were helping me up these stairs with nobody's business. And I was wondering, I remember Big Jock saying to me in the dressing room, you and Sean have to go and get the, the trophy. And I've got to be honest with you, I don't think I understood what he was saying. And he talked about it, and I said, what do you mean have to go and get the trophy? He said, you and Sean have got to go and get the trophy. So I had to leave a dressing room that was full of happy players, really enjoying themselves. And then I took the trophy here from the, 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 the president. People ask me to this day, how did you manage to lift it above your head? And I, I don't know, I haven't a clue. I think I could have managed to lift the whole of the Blooming Stadium, to, to be honest with you, at one time. And it was, it was wonderful. And if you look at it, you're up in a real high position here. And it was terrific. And I could see right around the whole stadium and the pitch and the people on the track just right in front of us there, green and white. And the, the, it was an interesting thing. The Milan supporters didn't disappear. They, they, they were here, loads of them, and they were applauding us. So they obviously had got something out of the game as well. The one part that would change you know, we were, we were a team, still are a team as it so happens. And the fact that all the boys weren't there with me is the one thing that I'd like to, to alter. And if I could do that, that is, that is what a permanent wish would be. Hello, you're listening to the Grand Old Podcast, episode number 66, and I almost wish it was number 67. Celtic are just about champions again. We need one more point to secure our eighth successive title in a row, but given the week that we've all just had, it all just doesn't seem to matter quite as much. Another immortal Celtic legend passed over to the other side, perhaps the most immortal of the lot. The captain of our greatest ever team, Billy McNeil died on Monday at the age of 79 after a nine-year battle with dementia. Following his death, his family called on fans to tell his stories, sing his songs and celebrate his life 
and here on the Grand Old Podcast, that is exactly what we're going to do for the next hour or so. Minus the singing, hopefully we won't bother with that. <laughs> but as always, I've got John McGinley returning alongside Hello. Paul Fisher. Hello. Uh, and John, quite simply, another great passes on. Yeah, another great passes on, and it's desperately sad, really. And I think what's sometimes hard to fathom when a presence, a great presence such as Billy McNeil, um, passes on and leaves us is the familiarity we have of him, even though we never really saw him play as Celtic supporters. But hmm. it's it's difficult to comprehend because he, he becomes such a part of your Celtic supporting life, mainly because of the stories that are passed down to you by your parents, your mother, your father, your aunties, your uncles. He, it feels almost as if you know someone that you know has, has passed away, and that's sometimes difficult to comprehend. And I think what's so sad about it is that it makes you reflect on yourself, but it also makes you reflect on you know your relationship with your with the club, and your relationship with the club and and respect of other people too, because the people who told you those stories about Billy McNeil and Jimmy Johnston and Jockstein and the Lisbon Lions, you know some of them may have passed on as well. So that adds a, another melancholy feeling to it all. I think the great thing that's happened over the past few days is there's just been a real celebration of a great man and a great Celtic football player. And I think that's come from, you know, all corners. It's not just been Celtic supporters, but there's, you know, there's been many wonderful tributes, but also from the club. And I would say from the media at large as well, there's been fantastic reports, fantastic articles, fantastic pieces to video, you know, from journalists who either knew Billy McNeil or just were simply, you know, in awe of him as a, as a football player and a man. And, that all culminated with the match on Saturday, really. And I know, we'll, I know we're going to go into detail on it more, you know, with regards to the goal and all that. But I just want to touch on it quickly: is that you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a spiritual man. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not a religious man. I was raised as a Catholic, but um, I've never, if I had a long, deep conversation with myself right now, I would hazard a guess that I would say that I don't really believe in anything. <laughs> but there's something to do with death and spirituality. It still has a, a small glimmer of connection with me. And, you know, people will, will have experienced this in their own life with close family members who have passed away. And as you two know, you know, my father passed away in September last year. And when I came home from his funeral, I had this really up-close personal, you know, moment with spirituality, with something, a real mental coincident, coincidental thing that happened that I still can't explain with logic, even looking at it in the most logical way I can. And it's a moment that will stay with me for the rest of my life. And that's linked to, to the game on Saturday because for tens of thousands of people that match, the goal that was scored as the clock ticks 67 minutes by a number five defender called Jozo Saminovic, who doesn't score many goals. When that header went in in the same manner that, you know, dozens of headers went in by the great Billy McNeil towering above defenders and nodding one home for Celtic from across, that's a moment that will live with them for the rest of their lives. And... Football's a stupid game. It's really a silly game at the end of the day, but it's these moments and these you know shared experiences that make it so great and make it what it is. And I thought that was just the perfect way to end what has been an emotional, sad, but ultimately joyous week as well. And I think that we can be grateful of that. And it's you know it's our honour, you know, doing the podcast, but also our honour just as Celtic fans to pass on his stories to others and to the next generations that follow. 
and and that's going to be the best thing about it. His legend is going to live forever because he is the one and only Billy Neil. Yeah, and that's what we're going to endeavour to do uh, over the course of podcast number sixty six is tell the story of Caesar, the, the Caesar, the life of Caesar, looking back from uh, birth to death, effectively, and and all the incredible many stories and subplots and all the other stuff that happened during his life. It's uh, going to be a hell of a journey, Paul. It is indeed, and it's it's an emotional one. Listening to John speaking there, it's. It brought me back to Tuesday morning when I heard the news, and then and yesterday I was in sitting in the house myself watching the game. I was a wreck. It it's incredible how, how things like that can can affect you, and you don't expect it to. As John said, it's it's not a family member of ours. It's not somebody you knew personally, but you do think that you do know these people personally, because you have been brought up with all the wonder um, and stories of of what these guys did in Lisbon and throughout their careers as football players. And Billy McNeil was the the epitome of of a Celtic great. He is just the the guy that you look at iconic images all over the place and such a a legendary figure that you just got to the stage where you thought oh, he's he's never going away. He's immortal, and and now that he has passed on from this life, he is he has been immortalised by the support by uh, by the media by fans across the the country across the UK across the world. The tributes have been unbelievable, and I think it it's just the fact that who he was as a man first of all, and then as a football player after that, because he was such a good guy. Yeah, I mean, as I say, we'll we'll come on to all the you know the tributes and the the respects that have been paid because it has been remarkable when you think about it, the the number of different people and you know politicians and comedians and football clubs and sporting clubs from not just around Scotland, not just around Britain, but from around the world that have paid tribute to this man since he sadly passed away. It just shows that, you know, the effect he had on people while he was living during his life, both on and off the pitch as well. We will right now just just tell the story of Billy McNeil as we say, starting our way back um, in nineteen forty, the second of March when he was actually born. Uh, he was born in Bells Hill, uh, Lanarkshire. And he actually uh, he moved to England uh, at age nine after his dad, who was in the Black Watch, uh, was posted in Hereford. I know he spent a, a couple of years down there. And in his early days, the, the first team that he ever he ever saw when he moved kind of back up here or, or prior to that was actually Motherwell, believe it or not. He was a bit of a regular at Fur Park when he first went to, to see them. And it, it wasn't until, you know, when the big crowds came with the likes of Celtic and Rangers uh, that went to Fur Park when he, he really fell in love with uh, a team. And that team he fell in love with was, was Celtic. Um, he was signed at the age of 17 by reserve coach then, Jock Steen. Remember him? He went on to, to do not bad. Uh, he'd saw Billy McNeil playing in the Scottish schoolboys match against England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was actually completely by fortune, John, that Steen was at that game. It's, it's quite unbelievable, really, that he saw in that young player exactly what he would grow to become. I mean, that's it's a rare kind of scouting that's kind of... It's almost lost these days because it's all about... It's almost as if Jockstein knew what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. But it's that kind of skill, you know, that kind of inherent gut feeling. It's kind of lost these days because um, it's all built up about, you know, analytics and stats and, you know, the, obviously they look into the personality and the, the conduct of the player. But back then it was all about, you know, just having a relationship with the player and knowing that that player can grow into something special. And, you know... Billy McNeil's personality is what drove his entire Celtic career. You know, he was a player, he was he was a, a, a fantastic defender, a stout defender. But it wasn't his ability that made him a Celtic great. It was just the sheer the sheer personality 
and you know drive and ambition of him and to to bring out the best of all his teammates as well and and Jockstein you know obviously saw something of that back then even in those early days and Bertie Auld I've got a quote from him here from the early days slightly later on but he clearly saw something as well he says Billy McNeil was a natural leader of men he had presence and arrogance without being big-headed when he walked into the dressing room in 1958 I instinctively felt it was the start of something big for Celtic I mean we know Bertie Auld probably along with John Clark Billy McNeil's best pal throughout his life um, certainly in a football sense, Paul, do you, do you think he, he's, he's truthful with his word there? Do you think he knew from an early age that Billy McNeil was the star he was going to be? It's something that a lot of people um, have said about Billy McNeil is the, the kind of aura of the man. And I don't know if that's because when people met him, he was already this, this superstar who, who captained this extraordinary side. But I think people who, who speak about him in, in terms of out with football and out with anything else, he, he was this... This man who who just carried himself in in a manner where he he was born to lead. I think he was the the guy that if somebody was struggling, you would look up to him, and he he would he was always um, the kind of guy who would would show emotion, but in a, in such a way that it would help he, his peers. And I think Bertie Old is is one of the kind of uh, the characters of of the of the Lisbon lines, and for him to to say to say that, I think he he realised that. Right, this is his 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 man. He's he's probably looking at him like a like a brother, mm. but also the fact that his stature that he just just carried himself in. It's just it's just a natural thing. Some people have it, some people don't. And and Billy Mineo clearly had a, a leadership and and a a way of 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 holding himself, um, whether it's in football or without. Uh, do you know how much Celtic paid for Billy Mineo, guys? No, I don't. No, no. Do you want to hazard a guess? A couple of hundred quid. Two hundred and fifty pounds. Wow. Now is that not bargain of the? <laughs> I don't know the the history of football. I mean, yeah. imagine paying two hundred and fifty pounds. I know it's all relative, but back then, even to pay two hundred and fifty pounds for a guy who would go on to win what thirty one uh, trophies, twenty three of them as a player, incredible, incredible value for money. He became our first team regular for uh, Celtic in around about 1960. He made his international debut for Scotland the following year uh, in a 9-3 defeat to England. Is that not <laughs> remarkable? I mean, that could have been his first and last game, John. Yeah, I mean, the thing about that Celtic period is it didn't have much success. But, you know, what's often told about that, that you know, the kind of drought up until 1965, which I'm sure you're about to come on to, I think that it was these players grew together as teammates and friends, and I think that really defined the rest of their time at Celtic and beyond. That kind of period of adversity where they weren't winning much and kind of learning the trade as players, but you know, also just you know, as as young guys coming into the world, playing for a massive club like Celtic, you know, it's it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to you know make that transition from being a young player into someone who can lead Celtic to enormous success. And but that period where they were, they all kind of played together became good friends good teammates was just absolutely massive until the turning point in 1965 which obviously McNeil had a massive role to play in yeah it's the Scottish Cup final you're talking about victory against Dunfermline Dunfermline themselves at that stage were a pretty good nick I think Jock Steen had maybe just left him a couple of years prior to that Celtic won the match 3-2 for their first trophy in eight years Uh, Billy McNeil as you say scored the winner a typical Billy McNeil goal 
Uh, I know Bobby Lennox has gone on the record about this. Paul was saying that this was McNeil's most important goal for Celtic because Lennox reckons that it kept the, the team that would soon be known as the Lisbon Lions together uh, because, you know, Jockstein may have wondered whether they were a team that could cross the finishing line and win trophies if they hadn't have won this one. Exactly, and I think I think Bobby Lennox is correct because... The players have started to gel, um, as John said, they, they started to become proper mates, proper teammates, and to get that trophy, to stop that drought, to, to think of that drought, to think of eight years without a trophy now, it, it's unthinkable. And <laughs> now, that looking at it, it was Billy McNeil, he was the man that stepped to the, stepped up to the plate and he went, well, we're going to win this game, I'm going to get, be the guy that gets the goal. And to to win, obviously, against a very, very good, um, I think that, that Dunfermline side, their reputation, they were really, really, really good side. Um, I've got a family member who's a Dunfermline fan, and he always kind of every time I see him in conversation, that's that's the team or that's the kind of the era that he goes to because obviously they've had their ups and downs. So that game, it could have went the other way, and God knows what could have happened after that. But thankfully, McNeil was there on the day, and and they managed to get over the line. But it just shows, I think, as well, the measure of the man where. He mm-hmm. signs. He signs in. He signs in the the late nineteen fifties, and, and he's still there, six seven seasons later, trying to get this team to where it they, they should be, and that's, it's, it's quite interesting to to look at seven years down the line as the kind of first time that he gets his hands on silverware, think of how many chances they had before that and where they they've came up short or they've they've been gelling together, that was the the the, the first piece of the puzzle where they've started to go, right, well, we're building yeah. something special here and now we can look at, look forward to we've won the Scottish Cup, what else can we do? And they did quite a fair bit after that. I've got <laughs> a quote here from The Glory in the Dream Book by Tom Campbell and Pat Woods, which is a terrific Celtic book on Celtic's history. It was written a couple of decades ago now, but fantastic writing about, you know, basically the formation of the club right through the golden era. And um, it basically sums up McNeil's Scottish Cup winning goal. And the quote goes, For two seconds, Hamden's vast bow was still, stunned with the sudden shock of decision, and then erupted into bedlam. The roar continued, minute after minute, and its prevailing note changed. It was not merely the burst of joy that a goal produces, rather it was a tumultuous welcome to the future, and the instinctive realisation by all Celtic support that the young men had grown up, and that nothing now, nor in the years to come, would withstand their collective spirit. Very interesting, isn't it, that they, they look back at that victory and just ending the drought, and it was, you know, kind of a, a case of the first will will breed confidence, and then many more will come, and there was a feeling of inevit- inevitability at that stage. Uh, there was also a bit of a, a feeling of inevitability about McNeil's career and, and the fact it was only going in one direction, uh, he was named as the winner of the, the Scottish Player of the Year Award. This is actually back in its inaugural season, which was round about this time. I think it might actually have been that very year. So right from you know that stage in his career, he was, he was receiving really good accolades. And it's a point we'll, we'll maybe touch on slightly later, but there's a lot of chat I've heard of, you know, that he was an iconic Celtic player. Mm-hmm. He perhaps wasn't the best Celtic player or the most talented Celtic mm-hmm. player. But I often feel that's a little bit of a a kind of harsh criticism because he was a wonderful Celtic player, not just as a leader, but in terms of an actual footballer as well, a player that played in the very best team and was one of our top players. Well, he just had a bravery about him as well. And it's just that, that willingness to put his body on the line to, you know, repel any 
attacking teams from scoring against us that might come out as as that we do. You know, it was that was his defining trait, but that ultimately trickled its way into his his playing on on the football pitch as well. And yeah, you like you say, by that point he was really emerging as the one of the best players that we'd we'd had for decades, along with many others in that team. And by the time nineteen sixty seven rolled around there was really, really no stopping them, and literally no stopping them in any competition, which will never be repeated by any Celtic side. Uh, a, a season that has become the the beacon of success for Celtic now and forever. It will, it will never be bettered, and and McNeil's part in that will never be repeated. It's in, it's incredible. Yeah, well, as you say, Celtic did embark on a, a glory period of domination, um, nine in a row seven Scottish Cups, six League Cups. As you say, the 1966-1967 season was, of course, the best, the pinnacle of that team. They won all five trophies that they entered, uh, which were the three we've just mentioned, plus the Glasgow Cup, and, of course, the big one with the big years, one in Lisbon. <laughs> the Lisbon Lions, as they were known, uh, after that triumph, they beat Zurich, Nantes, Vojvodina, uh, which actually Billy McNeil scored a massive, massive goal, real help in that game. A towering header he scored in the quarters of that one, uh, which I've, I've heard a few of the Lisbon Lions talking. They actually reckon that was their toughest test on the road to Lisbon. So just a sign there, Paul, that even throughout that, that tournament, even though he wasn't one of the attacking players, when Celtic needed a leader and Celtic needed a moment, it was quite often, like the cup final, like the quarterfinals of the European Cup, it was Billy McNeil with a header. Yeah, and it's it's, it's very... Interesting looking through the like the all the fixtures for the the cup run um of that year, the the book that Celtic produced it was Paul Cardy that had wrote it um a couple of seasons back for the for the anniversary goes into extreme detail on each of the legs and each of the the games and the opponents and and how the team prepared and the various factors that go along with it and it was it was fascinating reading because obviously these things we we know about we hear about we can remember the growing up and being told about the, these games but to actually look at how how tough the, the competition was like, and how tough it was for these guys to, to go right well who are we playing next right? we're playing Vojvodina it's like your first instinct would go if you're a younger guy who, who are they really from and they had to do this the scouting of them they had to look at who they were playing and, and what their styles were without any technology any real sort of technology and they managed it in such a way that they knew going into each game how they would set up, um, how they would they would counteract the the other sides. And the majority of the games, don't get me wrong, the the Celtic stuck to to the philosophy, the the attacking philosophy that Jockstein had, and, and the players believed in it, and, and it ultimately came good. But I, I remember reading about the the Vojvodina away game, which was one of the I think that was the the toughest game that they said on the on the road to the final. They lost one 0 but they knew coming back to Celtic Park, coming back to Paradise, that they had the home support and, and there was something special in the air. Getting over that line in the quarterfinals was probably the e I'm saying the easiest once they were there in the quarterfinals they knew that there was three games to go and, and they had the measure of, of, of Dukla Prague and then the Inter Milan's story will go into, but it speaks for itself. But I think the the measure of Billy McNeil and that kind of thing, knowing that they've got this 1-0 loss going into the quarter-final second leg, it's going to be a tough game. But the players rallied, and I remember reading in the book, it was it was, it was a tough slog. And the, hmm. the, the opponents had had a few chances, Ronnie Simpson did a few good saves, and then they made the breakthrough, and the second goal came not long after. And 
through obviously Billy McNeil's scoring, it, it's brilliant to look back at all the scorers because all the guys chipped in with, with different goals throughout. Obviously, the, the two will be remembered for the goals in the cup final, but all the, the other guys chipped in with goals and, and helped along the way. That's why they were a, a real side, a real uh, a unit of, of, of 11 plus men who managed to, to get this trophy. And it's baffling to think how, how they managed to do it. It just, it just doesn't, I, I can't comprehend how these 11 guys from Glasgow and Roundabout managed to, to win this trophy. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, victories, as we say, over Zurich, Nantes, Vodredina, Dukla Prague, took uh, the Lisbon Lions to surprise Lisbon, where they took on Inter Milan. How did that one go, John? Um, I think it was, you know, a pretty boring game. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think Celtic had many chances. <laughs> no, um, it was a, a turning point in, in British football, a turning point in Northern European football, a turning point in attacking football, because up to that point, the the competition had been dominated by defensive sides and Jockstein and his boys said to hell with that and gave them hell from the first minute, conceded a goal and had to fight their way back into the game and just basically bombarded them with attack after attack until they basically they basically bent to our will. We wanted to win that game and we had the fitness and the skill and the guile and the tactics to make sure that happened and we just consistently knocked down the door all throughout the game. And it, it was incredible. Billy McNeil describes it. He describes, you know, going forward and going ahead as this. The, the, the fact they scored an early goal, that made it obvious for us. The only thing we could do was to take the game to them. And that worked for us. And that was our style. They weren't into our style. And it worked for us. And he goes on to say about the moment that they went ahead. That was magnificent. I've got to be honest with you. I can't even describe how I felt at that particular moment, but we knew then. I started saying to the other players, we've got to finish this game, don't let them into this game. They were gone. They were gone at that time. I mean, there was a feeling of inevitability about that one, just in the way the game was played. And I think that as soon as they, they found themselves on the front foot in that game, despite going down, despite conceding, they just had this belief that they... They, they could achieve this for, for Celtic as teammates and as friends who had come through you know all this adversity, they've stayed together as a group and they were best friends who wanted to play for each other and that was as important as anything else and I think Billy McNeil was the central the central point of that aspect of the Lisbon Lions. Jock Steen brought the tactics and he brought the attack in football, Jimmy Johnston brought the skill and others in the team brought plenty of, plenty of everything else but Billy McNeil, I think, embodied that team spirit. And I think all the players looked up to him for a reason. He was the central focus of all that. And he ultimately inspired them as much as anyone to that victory, even though he was a defender. Uh, he spoke in uh, the, the documentary, I think, that was made by Celtic called The Billy McNeil Story, which, by the way, is a, a really good watch. It's about 90 minutes long. It's available, I think, on YouTube, actually, as well. Uh, he spoke in that about that game in Lisbon and... He's quoted as saying, the minute we got the breakthrough, I knew we were going to win. Um, he felt it was all about getting that breakthrough and he was apprehensive until Celtic got that goal. But the minute they got that first goal and they got it past the goalkeeper, uh, who was had an absolute blinder that night, uh, he knew that Celtic were going to get the victory. And of course, following the match, he, he goes up, he lifts the trophy, becoming the first British man to do so, Paul. Uh, it's an iconic image that, you know, we can all see in our minds and 
I guess it's 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 not overstating it to say that it's certainly the the greatest image in the history of Celtic Football Club, probably the greatest in terms of Scottish football and quite possibly in terms of Scottish sport as well. It's just it's an amazing image that you could look at forever and ever seeing him there himself. I know there was a reason why he was there on his own pretty much. I think Sean Fallon was there, but it was pretty much Billy McNeil, and we'll come on to that kind of discussion point in a minute. But what it did do was just create this incredible image of, you know, black and white suits all around him and people dressed so smartly and, you know, black and white colours and, and Billy McNeil standing there in his, his green and white hooped top with nothing else on really other than the Celtic colours lifting the most iconic trophy in world football. Yeah, it's it's quite extraordinary when you think about it in, in the sense of just that photograph and the, the image that comes to mind, the, the small but understated smirk he has on his face so the the sense of realization where he's he has done something that that no other guy from from our shores have done has done before he is he's the first person to lift that trophy aloft out with latin europe and that trophy is iconic for celtic fans for for a reason i know people who say oh, it's 50 years ago you, you should move on you stop living in the past but we are living in a time where we are the only and probably will be the only side who have lifted that trophy and to do it in the way that we did it and then for, for the, the person who had to, to go up to, to pick up that trophy to, to be Billy McNeil, there was no other way. I think, obviously, he himself would have wanted his teammates to be there with him and for, for each of them to celebrate together. But I think they did obviously did that after the game. But I think... However it happened, the, the way in which the, the series of events fell into place, I think it's probably perfect because he is the man that, that everybody goes, well, he's, he's he missed Mr Celtic, he, he's around the club, he'd been around the club for, for a good period of time um, when he was lifting that trophy and he was around for a lot long, lot longer after it. That image is the one that will stick in the mind of, of every Celtic fan, young, old or yet to be born. When they see that image, they know that our club achieved a first that could never be broken, it could never be beaten, and it's just unbelievable that, that he was the, the guy who to do it. It's like Hamish describes, you know, his colours, you know, amongst the the more understated colours of everyone around him, and it's a good point because when you see the photo, it's almost, it's almost as if he's like a beacon of light and he's receiving this big glorious silver trophy, and it's, it's weird because it's just like, like Hamish says, it's just an image that's burned into your, burned into your brain. It's an image, it's a beacon that's kind of transcended generations and will continue to do so. And well, you know, obviously it's the most fantastic Celtic image of all time. But he was like the living embodiment of Celtic success, and I think that's why it's been so sad. And there's been such an outpouring of celebration and emotion this week because he he was the living embodiment of everything that Celtic should aspire to now and forever. And you know, the fact that he was there on his own was obviously a regret for him. But like Paul says, I think it was it's kind of fit in because it's an image that's endured as a kind of and a, like this this one focus of of Celtic yeah. success. 
I think that's it nailed on. I mean, I think it would have been absolutely wonderful for all the Lisbon Lions and Jockstein to be up there. And uh, I know, as you say, Billy McNeil spoke about that so often that it was one regret from, from that night was the fact that his teammates were in the dressing room and, and not just that they were away from him, but he was away from them and he didn't get to enjoy all the festivities going on in the, the dressing room following that triumph. But you're, you're so right. that The fact that there's, there's one focus of that image and it's the leader... And he's just looked so amazing holding it up. I think he's quoted as saying he, he, he looks amazing, could have yeah. lifted the stadium at, at that point. It's it's absolutely incredible. He's a very handsome um, man as well. I mean, he's just there. It's just a magnificent image. There's everything about it is perfect. It, it it flies in the face of everything people say nowadays. And I don't know if they've always said it, but people say about Scottish people not being good enough and not being strong enough and quick enough and triumphant enough. It just flies in the face of all of that because it just showed, and the Lisbon Lion showed that. Scotland, and I know they did it for Celtic, but Scotland as well could could triumph on on the, the Europe or the world stage, and it's just absolutely remarkable. Um, I'm biased, but I, I promise you, I've not seen anyone lift that trophy better since Billy McNeil. I mean, no one has lifted it in the, the same way in the same triumphant manner that he did. Uh, another couple of things I didn't realise from that night that Celtic didn't get a lap of honour at the ground no. at all. Um, there was too many fans or yeah, folk, and I know there's a lot of police there on the, on the pitch at the time, and they actually only got their medals at the dinner event yeah. uh, following the match. They were handed to Jockstein in a shoebox. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the reason why he had to go really on his own with, with Sean Fallon, because the Celtic fans had invaded the pitch and celebrated wildly, as we all know from the images. And uh, Bill, I mean, he was basically told, you know, you've got to go and get the trophy now with Sean Fallon. And he was he was kind of uh, paraded through the, the stadium by police, flanked by police up the stairs, you know, lifted up by the Inter supporters who were in the crowd. And, you know, he makes a point when he tells the story of lifting the cup that the Inter fans were in the stadium as well, watching him lift that because... As he says, he he feels they got something out of the game as well because it was a momentous occasion, not just for Celtic Football Club or Billy McNeil or anyone, but it was a momentous football occasion. And I think that's what's it, it transcends Celtic. It goes beyond Celtic, and I think that's what makes it so special as well. So Celtic, as we well know, reached the European Cup final three years later too, but it was a tale of disappointment this time in Milan. Uh, as the team lost 2-1 to Feyenoord in heartbreaking circumstances. At this stage, there was a bit of a, a knee problem going on with Billy McNeil. It was all getting a little bit too much for him, and he retired at the age of 35. His final game as a player was in the Scottish Cup final victory over Airdrie. Apparently the fans didn't know he was retiring until he was hoisted high on his teammates' shoulders at full time. Uh, imagine being that there that day, Paul. It would have been a truly remarkable sight. Like a lot of of great winners and, and great champions, the, to to go out at a high uh, is is where you want to go, you know, and to to bring your reputation down or or your godlike status. And the fact that, that he did that by by winning yet another trophy, um, is quite remarkable. But looking at it, it's, it's quite interesting. I think I always think of that image in, in the day where when he won the Scottish Cup for the for the the final time as a player, and he's got his kind of longer hair um, he's looking a bit like a film star you know the 70s uh, have arrived <laughs> exactly so was, you can see it was a kind of changing of the era changing of the garden but he, he was still there still the swagger he walked about with you could see him he was still the, the man that, that everybody knew and loved and I, I just I think it's perfect for him to to, to finish off his, his playing career the way he kind of really kicked off his Celtic career by, by winning that trophy uh, once again Jockstein said. Jockstein said the year before he had a they had a testimonial against Liverpool in nineteen seventy four, and I think this quote from Jockstein basically sums up his playing career for Celtic. 
and what made him so great. And Jockstein said in the, the testimonial match programme for that, he said, what makes a great player? It's a question I'm often asked and my answer is always the same. He is the one who brings out the best in others. And when I, I'm saying that, I'm talking about Billy McNeil. It is this quality of bringing the units of the team together and inspire them, inspiring them to play for each other and for the club, which has raised our captain above all others in the past decade. Yeah, it's truly remarkable. Another one from, from Billy McNeil here. Uh, I've often been asked what makes a successful team, and I believe the answer is relatively simple. It's about knowing that your mates are standing by your side ready to lend their unqualified support and the belief that there is nothing that cannot be achieved. Um, Billy McNeil, I think it's a stat that probably both of you are going to bring up at some stage. I'll nip in first. <laughs> he, he played 822 club matches. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them came for Celtic yeah. and he was never substituted. That's unbelievable. You've got to laugh at that. It was, it was the days when you know the substitutes were limited. I think it was only one per match. But still, I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, that amount of appearances alone. But I think that they're all stats. And I think um, I think it was just shy of 800 in the, the main cups. And then another, like, 25 or yeah. so came in the Glasgow Cup. Fibra Cup, cup and was, all those. Yeah, but that was a time when that was competitive. Um, so I would say that they are counted. I don't think Celtic officially count the 822. I think it's 798 they count. Right. But I would count the 822. I think that's spot on because I think to go over the 800 mark is just that little bit special and a little bit more special. And the fact that all stats, I mean, it just sums up how physic, what a physically demanding career he had and, and how incredibly consistent and successful he was to have achieved that. And that's why he's a titan of, of Celtic. Is I mean, you could just read that number and people would just assume that he's an, an incredible player without all the trophy successes. I mean, that alone stands as something that would make him an automatic Celtic legend. So, yeah. unreal. 23 trophies, that probably helped to make him a legend as well. Jo- uh, Paul, and that's just as a player. Yes, exactly. The the um, the the win, the league wins are, are historical and they're magical in terms of that, but it's also the Scottish Cup, the League Cup and the European Cup. And I think it was... Um, I can't remember. Somebody had quoted it during the week, saying the the, the poetic way. If you if you style them in the right way, won one European Cup, nine league titles, six league cups, and seven Scottish cups, and it was nineteen sixty seven once again. Uh, oh. It's it's incredible. That's the mental. Way, it is, it's, it's it's absolutely crazy, and the, the way that that it just reads, and there's so much, so many things. And uh, same with you, John, about the spirituality thing. I, I'm not a great believer in it, but when it comes to things like that, these wee nuggets just pop up now and again, and they pop up a lot more with with this guy. He just he, this magical um, way that he played for the club, managed the club, was around the club, and there's always something there that it's it's just special. Yeah, he won twenty nine caps for Scotland. I don't know about you guys, that doesn't seem very many. No, I mean, it's a time when Scotland didn't play as many games, but as many older Celtic fans will tell you that the Lisbon Lions um, didn't get their due from the Scotland national team, let's just say that. Yeah. Um, they never qualified time. for the, the 1970 World Cup. Imagine they had and, and they'd been given a, a fair crack at it with, with five or six of the Lisbon Lions. Scotland could have done something pretty special. Well, they could have had all 11, couldn't they? <laughs> exactly. They could, have, they could have went to the World Cup and, and see what they could do against the best in the world, never mind the best in Europe. 
God, the thought of the Lisbon Lions going to the World Cup to represent Scotland. I mean, why? Who was around at that time that didn't just let that happen? I mean, you would just go to the guys, like put Jockstein in charge, and just go and win as a World Cup lads. It'd be incredible. <laughs> anyway, he moved on to his managing career at this stage. He began that uh, with Clyde briefly. I think only a couple of months there, yeah. uh, and he then moved to Aberdeen after Jockstein, his old pal and boss, had recommended him. He finished runner-up in both the league and the cup for the Dons, and he then moved to Celtic after. Just one season, again after being recommended by his old pal Jock Steen to be his successor. Uh, that's a bit of a pressure role, isn't it, John? I mean, you talk uh, kind of nowadays about going in, you know, after Brendan Rodgers or going in mm. at Man United after Sir Alex Ferguson, but going in after Jock Steen, that's probably a pretty tough one. It's probably a pretty tough one, but when you think about it, it's also probably a complete no-brainer for everyone involved, even though he didn't have much managerial experience. If you think about that, that golden area of Celtic, who do you want leading the team after Jock Steen? And the automatic answer is Billy McNeil. So, I mean, it's, it was just the logical the logical inevitability of it. And obviously, with the blessing of Jock Steen, took charge and was a pretty successful Celtic manager in two spells. I mean, I know, the, I know there was a tinge of regret about, you know, the way it ended, but I think he won trophies as a manager, as a Celtic manager, in a ridiculously competitive time for Scottish football. And that should be celebrated too. I mean, he wasn't just an immense player, he was also a, ma- a manager who won multiple trophies with us and did so with the love and support of the entire Celtic support, you know? Yeah. Just interesting to note that it was actually Sir Alex Ferguson that took over from McNeil at Aberdeen. I didn't yeah. realise that until I was kind of reading I mean, McNeil also on. signed, you know, a few, I'm sure he signed a few of their players that would go on to have great success at Aberdeen as well. I can't remember the exact players he signed, but. Uh, he signed Strachan. He signed Strachan for one, and he, yeah, signed Strachan and Simpson. That's probably who I was thinking of. So, you know, he's also had an impact on, on their legacy as a club as well. And although he was only there for a season, I'm sure. The Aberdeen fans who are old enough will remember his time at the club pretty fondly, I would I would imagine. He actually reckons that, that he and his, his pal John Clark, who was working at, kind of as an assistant, I think, at that stage, he reckons that they should have stayed at Aberdeen for longer to serve more of an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. But he admits himself that he, he quite simply couldn't have said no when Celtic came calling. So he came back to Celtic. Celtic at this stage... Uh, in all honesty, and it's, it's a story that's not really spoke about too often. We're in a bit of dire straits at the end of Jock Steen's time. Um, there's been a few various things. I know Jock Steen had nearly been killed in a car crash and, and totally kind of bizarre things going on at that stage. But the facts of the matter were that Celtic had finished fifth the previous season, but McNeil took them to the title in his first season. Uh, again, that just shows, Paul, the impact he had as not just a player or a manager, but as an, an icon and a guy at that football club and a personality as well. Yeah, I think this is one of the things, and it's an old cliche, where someone new comes in and it gives a bit of rejuvenation for, for the club and, and for the players around them. But I don't think that can be understated with McNeil coming in and, and looking at him. And, and he's the guy who's who's done it all. He, he had literally done it all for Celtic. He'd won all the trophies that, that could be won. And he... Is started off his career at Aberdeen or just before at Clyde and, and thrown into the, the Lions then and he's trying to, to get the league back for Celtic and he managed to do it in, in such a Not actual way. Lions though. No, actually. <laughs> 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 he, he managed to do it in, in such a such a remarkable way. Um, and it goes down and it, it, it's probably understated, I think, in Celtic's history where um, for 10 men won the league 
and I know I'm saying that as, as a younger guy, but I think I think for me, like when when you're growing up in Celtic and you're told the, the the stories and and the matches of old, you're told about Lisbon, you're told about the centenary year and stuff like that. I think the the first two, but that one is just is, is incredible. I'm just noticing noticing a bit of a theme there when you mention all those big games, the fact that you know a certain guy happened to be around the club in charge or playing at the same time. It can't be a coincidence, certainly. In his five years at total, the first spell as Celtic manager, won three titles and two domestic cups as well. He then left to go to Manchester City after falling out with the then Celtic chairman Desmond White. Final straw, I believe, was White selling Charlie Nicholas to Arsenal without McNeil's consent. McNeil didn't want Nicholas to be sold at all. White went behind his back and did it anyway, and uh, McNeil decided that was a final straw. So he was a man of principle, Paul. He was, and... I think again, it's it's the measure of of the guy who, who has he he has what he believes in, to to be able to. For him to be able to go, like to to take a step back and and decide that that he's he's had enough at a club that's given him so much is is quite incredible. I don't know how, for for me certainly, I I think it's something that not a lot of people could do, um because it it takes it would take so much away from him um, in terms of his personal pride and stuff like that to be able to go right well I've had enough I am I am not going to be here and I don't know how, how he did it it just it leaves me kind of dumbfounded because those those people nowadays it's, it's slightly different with the way that football is as a, as a business rather, rather than as a sport and, and not a money making exercise but he would have been doing that for the love of Celtic um, that, that was evident from, from day one and to be able to turn his back on the club in such sour circumstances must have been absolutely heartbreaking for him. And I think it left a sour taste in the mouth for, for him for many years. Um, and it's it's baffling to think that that could occur. Like, thinking back now as fans and, and growing up, like, imagine that that happens for a guy yeah. just to be kind of thrown to the side, tossed away and, and, and forgotten about. A guy who did everything for the club and he did so much, he gave his life to Celtic and... Although obviously things came around and he, everything was 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 sorted out to an extent, but I think it's just it's pretty sad that that he was was treated in the way that he was. But happened it did sadly, and he he moved down south to go to Manchester City, not the high flying Man City that we know nowadays, but in nineteen eighty five. Uh, he did take them to promotion to the top flight and then survival the following year. He then moved to Aston Villa but was relegated in 1987. In terms of the Man City stuff, I've got a, a belter of a quote, probably my favourite quote about the whole Billy McNeil story. It comes from the uh, then chairman of Manchester City, Peter Swales. It's from 1989 and he's uh, quoted as saying the following, If ever a man was made for a specific club, it was Billy McNeil and Glasgow Celtic. He was never really manager here or at Aston Villa. His heart was always at Parkhead. I guess when we kind of pay all these compliments to the man, uh, John, and you know all the folk at Celtic and players that he played with under under him at Celtic, it's it's biased in many ways because it's a it's a Celtic viewpoint. But this is some guy from the outside, a guy Peter Swales, a chairman of Man City, who mm-hmm. has no real affiliation to Celtic, but he knows Billy McNeil and he, he knows the fact that how much the club meant to well, Billy McNeil and. And vice versa as well. The British media large were in love with the Lisbon Lions, they were in love with Jock Steen, and they were in love with players like Billy McNeil. They, the journalists and the people who grew up watching the Lisbon Lions 
probably viewed them in the same manner as people of our generation look at a team like Barcelona or something. I mean, that's how that's how important they were to football at that time, and that's how easy they were to watch and how exciting they were to watch and what a revolution they brought to the game. And so, you know, they're like I say, their 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 status in football transcends Celtic and Scotland, and I'm sure for many people, many older people who don't support Celtic, when they think of Celtic, they probably think of people like Billy McNeil and, and Jock Steen, because that's just, that's why that quote is so good, because it's just so simple and so true, and gets to the heart of why Billy McNeil will always be synonymous with Celtic for for then now and, you know, in decades to come. So as Peter Swales says, Billy McNeil's heart was always at Park Head. He certainly, his heart and his body returned to Celtic, uh, back to Celtic just in time to win the league and the Scottish Cup double in 1988, which if you do your maths was quite a famous year for Celtic, of course, our centenary year. And as I was just saying, Paulie, he just always seemed to be around somewhere in our greatest moments and that can't be a coincidence. No, not at all. I don't think it is. I think it was. it's poetic in the sense that after what happened when he left and, and for him to come back and, and do things his way and for the, the squad in, in, in terms of how there wasn't a, a, a great number of standout players in the squad that won the league that year. Yeah, that wasn't but, a good team, I don't think. That wasn't no. a very good... They were, I think they were quite young as well. And, and, and the fact that there was a lot more money coming in and, and there was things starting to change in the game throughout, kind of the, probably throughout Britain. But he somehow, and I think it, a lot of people still kind of scratched their heads of how he managed to do it with the team that he had he'd lo- I think Celtic had just lost Brian McClare who, who was a fantastic player and he managed to win the league and he managed to win the cup and I think when when these things are, are coming around like these anniversaries about what what um, how many years it's been since different events in, in the club's history for, for that for, for Billy McNeil to be involved kind of 20 years later um, coming in for, for the Nineteen sixty seven, and then for it to lead into eighty eight for the the centenary year, uh, centenary season is is pretty special, and he is it, it is down to him. There's, there's, you can understate managers or you can overstate managers, but he's a, he's a guy who who knew that what had to be done that season. I think Celtic fans would have been very very disappointed if they hadn't at least won one trophy, and he managed to win two. Andy Walker speaks at length about how often Billy McNeil as manager mentioned the supporters that year and you know how he, the, the players couldn't afford to let them down in such a big year and I, I guess that, that's the kind of aspect of Billy McNeil's persona and his legacy as well as the fact that he was so in tune mm-hmm. with the values and, and everything to do with Celtic Football Club and you look at that year you know winning the league title at Celtic Park the old Celtic Park um Jockstein never won a single title, funnily enough, at home, which I found quite remarkable given how many he won in the league uh, and obviously winning that final against Dundee United as well. The trailing he puts on uh, a couple of players, I think it's McGee and, and Billy Stark that he put on and Celtic turn it around in dramatic circumstances. And it just kind of, I mean, I wasn't around at that stage, John, but it, it just kind of encapsulated everything that was yeah. great about Billy McNeil and was great about Celtic at that point that I think only three other clubs have, have won major 
doubles in their, uh, on their centenary years and Celtic are one of them and it's probably, as you guys say, the fact it wasn't a great squad, it probably is mainly down to the manager and, and what he meant. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't around at that time either, just want to clarify well, you're the not. listeners at home. But I think the, the a lot of people of a certain age do say that as their favourite season by far as a Celtic supporter. And if you think of all the great seasons we've had since then, since we've been supporting the club, then you can consider that as a massive tip of the hat to what Billy McNeil and that team achieved for the supporters in a glorious year. I mean, it was when I was growing up in, in, in the nineties and stuff, that was that was the year that everyone talked about and you know, there was loads of videos and loads of stuff and that was always a, always came across as a formative year and or a sorry, a landmark year in in the history of Celtic and obviously Billy McNeil, no surprise that he's behind it all again. Sadly that was as good as it got second time round for for Billy McNeil at Celtic, period of you know fi- financial instability at Celtic Park and the rise of Rangers with Soonis and David Murray saw McNeil sacked in 1991 at the age of 51. That meant in total in his two spells he won eight trophies as manager, four titles, three Scottish Cups and a single League Cup. A total of 31 trophies um, won by Billy McNeil at Celtic. Bringing it up to date, John, uh, the most recent kind of uh, thing on the the timeline of or event on the timeline of of Billy McNeil's life, mm-hmm. December twenty fifteen, Celtic installed a statue as we well know of mm-hmm. that iconic image we were talking about earlier. McNeil lifting the European Cup. It sits right at the top of the Celtic Way. It's the first thing you see when you come to Celtic Park uh, when you're walking up the Celtic Way. It's the first thing you pass. It's uh, an incredible, incredible statue, the greatest one I've ever seen, and that kind of encapsulated everything that was great about the Billy McNeil story for me, that one statue, uh, an iconic image and I think the fact, that we might touch on it a wee bit later, but I think the fact that it was made and the fact that Billy McNeil was there uh, and, and he got to see the statue and all its glory and the unveiling um, and it wasn't something that was done after he'd passed away, I yeah. think is a, a wonderful tribute. I mean, I think there was probably a realisation, you know, he's, he was suffering with illness and it was time to pay tribute to him when he was still with us and I mean, that, that was a glorious time as well to be a Celtic supporter, just the unveiling of that statue. And it's the best statue at the ground. I mean, the other ones are good, but it's magnificent. It's a magnificent sight. I mean, it stands right on the road and you can see it from, yeah. you know, all angles coming and going towards Celtic Park. And um, it's just one of those things that the club had to do to make sure that his memory lives on. And, you know, the club have got it spot on this week again, I think. I think they've really managed to capture the right tone and they've not I mean the Celtic kicked the arse out of everything but they've not overstepped the mark as in terms of their media and what they've put out as a club and you know the the, the respect that they've paid to the family and to letting supporters and you know the video they put out on the day it was announced that he died was incredible and just everything they've just moving. they've got yeah it was moving I mean they've got a really spot on they've got the legacy of Billy McNeil they've done it in the right way and they've done it They've been building, you know, they've been building it for you know a couple of years, and they've got it spot mm. on, and it's going to that plays a role in keeping his memory alive because this week has been like an event week at Celtic, and it's something that people will remember, and it's something that will ensure that we keep telling the stories like the way that his family wanted to, and the supporters, the club, everyone's been a massive part of that. I think that's that statue signifies that really. I mean, that's going to be the focal point in the years to come. You know, when people come to their first Celtic game as a wee boy or a wee girl, 
and they come with whoever they're with and they see the statue, they might go, who's that? And they'll be told the story of Billy Menil, much in the same way as we're telling it now. I really like that idea as well, that it's the first thing you see when you're coming up the Celtic way, and it is that idea of, well, who, who's that daddy? And it's like, oh, he's Billy McNeil, the greatest captain this club ever saw. And it, it is an image, and it's a statue that's going to be, I think it's going to be there when we're all long and gone, in all honesty. I think it's it's going to live there forever, and it's absolutely brilliant. Um, just on the the reaction, I think you, you put it well. I think the... the the way the club have handled it with a lot of tributes and that two minute video I think was excellent. I think the fact it had, you know, apart from I think one bit of commentary in it, it had no other kind of spoken word I think was brilliant because, you know, Billy McNeil meant so much to so many people but he meant different things to so many people. Like I'm sure the, the listeners that are out there that are perhaps a little bit older and were around and the, the Lisbon Lions were in their pomp, Billy McNeil will mean totally different to, to what he means to me and I, I think the fact that video was just a, a nice music and it was just the images and the emotion of Billy McNeil allows everyone to kind of enjoy Billy McNeil in their own way and, and whatever they meant to him um, so I thought that was handled really well the statue by the way is, is done by John McKenna, a good Ayrshire boy Paul, so uh, yeah. we've, we've created another beauty and it it's it's just a, an amazing statue and it's going to be there forever. Just a few other awards uh, and other things I've possibly missed out and, and accolades he received while he was alive. Uh, 1974, he was awarded an MBE. He was also voted Celtic's greatest ever captain in 2002. He was inducted into the Scottish Sports Hall of Fame in the same year and also the Scottish Football Hall of Fame in 2004. And just prior to his death, uh, something that was... Quite incredible when you think about it, um, the timing of this from Athletic Bilbao. Uh, he was recognised with a One Club Man Award uh, by that club. I know that's something they hand out to, to players who basically fit that description. They're One Club people who I think are in line with the ethics of uh, the Basque club and community. So, I mean, he was kind of in our minds even prior to his, his death. Of course he was, Paul, but even more so with that Athletic Bilbao Award right up literally I think a week before he passed away yeah and thinking about that now is in, in the way that football is it's incredible that, that one person can can be a one club man in terms of their full career and to do so well like there's there's guys that'll be about clubs for for a long period of time and they'll be on the fringes they'll be on the bench they'll maybe get a couple of appearances he was pivotal in terms of the games that he played he started as we said he started every game he was never substituted and to play over eight hundred games for for any club, like there's not many people who would play eight hundred games across their whole career, and he's done it for one team. It's it it just it just shows that it's a true love affair between between one man and and his team, and there was nothing that was going to stop that. There was no way that he was going to go. I'll I'll go down south. There was opportunities very very early on in the career, but. Fate fell into place and, and things happened and, and he stayed and thank God he did because I think with the way that things are, Billy McNeil was going to be, I would say, there's nobody going to surpass that in terms of, of, uh, terms of appearances for the club and for him to be top of that list I think is, is poetic and I, I think for him to be awarded this and he said a week before what he's passing was, was quite... Um, it was really quite sad, but it was also uh, a brilliant way for, for him to be recognised out with uh, the Scottish footballing community. We've got a lot of good thoughts uh, and from you guys and girls. We'll get on to them in just a wee second. Just when we're talking about Billy McNeil, and obviously he has passed away now, John, 
there's been a lot of chat about you know perfect tributes to him would you like to see any long-standing tribute to the great man i know retiring the number five jersey certainly been mentioned yeah uh, one i've certainly thought of was perhaps you know naming the north stand the billy mcneil stand something like that i mean you could i mean you couldn't rename the stand i, d- I don't agree with the retiring of the the jersey simply because and I, I know this is silly but well there is a good reason there's a good reason but there's also a pedantic reason that's i don't think that's really how it retiring jerseys works i think it's more i think retiring the, yeah the, the 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 tradition in american sport which is where it originates from is that the, the the number is retired directly after they retire so no one else can wear it i mean loads of people have worn the number five shirt since billy McNeil was the club so to retire it now just seems a little bit a little bit messy in that regard but also because i feel like and this was an important point and i think it was Celtic rumors on twitter that said you know having the number five shirt and having any other shirt at Celtic, you know, the number seven, any other iconic number at Celtic, helps players aspire to be something that they might not be if they if they didn't think or want to um, absorb themselves in the legend of Celtic players that have gone before them. And I think you saw that this weekend with Jozo Seminovic. I mean, it was the perfect example. I mean, I don't know if he scores that goal if he's not wearing a number five shirt, you know what I mean? So I think having those numbers there... You know, as long as we have this kind of idea of what 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 certain numbers mean to set about certain players and and to Celtic and fans, then I think it's a good thing that they exist and go forward in the future. And I mean, the tribute. I think the statue is just the main thing for me. And so, to, to do any other tribute, I don't know. I mean, that's for the club to decide. And you know, obviously, Billy McNeil's family as well. So whatever they decide, I would be happy with. I mean, I think renaming the stand would be pretty good, but. You know, I'm not bursting for that to happen because I think the man stands on his own. That the man achieved everything that he could achieve in the game, and the iconic imagery and everything that he's achieved that he's left behind stands alone on its own without the need for us tinkering with it. Really, yeah, I think see this on the the issue of the renaming the stand. I think the fact that we have the Lisbon Lion stand is something that that him as a man would would want to. You're spot to on, yeah, yeah, because he was the embodiment of the club but, but his, he was the team man he was a man and yeah. that was, him, it wasn't him it right. was the team You're right, it Paul. was a team and I think the statue itself is quite um, is quite special because as you say there is obviously there's three other statues at the club and each of the statues are merited in their own special way but the fact that his stands itself he is not beside the other three puts him uh, for me, uh, on on another level, I don't know why it is. If it's just because of where it is and and where it and, and what it depicts in in terms of him lifting the trophy, but I think he he is he is the the one one guy who who you could go right. Well, this this is what we've we've given to him. We, we've given him this tribute at the weekend. We, we've we've given him a statue. We, we're going to be wearing his his number on the shorts at, at the Scottish Cup final, where we could yet again break a record. And I think that. If he was he was to make a decision, he he would be humble enough. I think I think these guys with statues, and I remember talking talking to Bobby Lennox when the talk of his statue was getting built. He was kind of like, oh, "Why are you doing this for me? I'm just I'm just a football player. It's not <laughs> something that these guys want. They they are um they're truly humbled by it, and I think the recognition and, and tributes that he he has he has got so far are. Are absolutely fantastic. If there's, the club want to do more, then then we're not obviously going to say anything bad about it. But I think the measure of the man is that he is the first person you see when you walk to to Celtic Park, and and he he towers above the the Celtic way in a, a way that's is pretty special. 
Right, a few uh, of you guys have been in touch on Twitter. I'll just read out some of the thoughts we were asking, just quite simply what Billy McNeil meant to you. Um, Paul at the Wonderful H on Twitter says he had the privilege of meeting McNeil at the North American Celtic Supporters Convention uh, around about 2006. He says he was a gentleman with an interest in my hometown of Belfast, a legend of a man and quality in every way, RIP Mr McNeil. Ewan uh, says he's far too young to have seen him play and don't have many memories many memories of his ambassadorial role but waking up on Tuesday and seeing the news was truly heartbreaking and I think that speaks volumes about the big man. Uh, Neil Rafferty, keen listener, he says it's always striking how hard the passing of a hero and legend like Billy can hit you. I was fortunate enough to be at the match yesterday and just want to say that the club and the support pitched the pre-match tributes to perfection. Beautiful, that's something uh, we'd certainly echo. Uh, and finally, Ewan, um, when he was Aberdeen manager, he lived in Stonehaven. He did a lot of great stuff for the community, got players to sign shirts for raffles to raise money for St Mary's Church and Charities, and he let Father Mac know kick-off times ahead of Mass. Before my time, unfortunately, but a lot of people in Aberdeen sure have a countless great things to say about him and the McNeil family. An absolute gent. Um of course, it was a, a highly emotive week and we all knew that it was going to be a highly charged atmosphere at, at the game against Kilmarnock on, on Saturday. Um, taking everything else to, to one side and the importance of the match itself, it was, of course, a chance for the Celtic support as a whole, as they have been since Monday, to pay tribute to the great man. Um, great occasion, a, a Green Brigade display, fantastic, of course the, the minutes applause, the, the family spoke about how football stadiums weren't meant to be quiet and they wanted minutes of applause rather than minutes of silence, great to see and as uh, Neil just said there for me guys it was just it was just handled really really classily by the club from yeah. basically the minute of his death, the way they the way they acted on social media on the various channels, but also in person at the game. I thought the big number five in the centre circle, um, the tributes, the fact they had the Lisbon Lions out, it was a highly emotive couple of minutes. The display was amazing match. too. The, well, the couple of the, the few displays that there were were amazing as well. I mean, the fans played their part. I mean, the Green Brigade one was simply perfect, I would suggest. It was just magnificent. At short notice as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the stuff that they can pull together is is unbelievable, really. And I know there was other, you know, wordy displays in other areas of the ground as well. So fair play for everyone to, you know, getting their act together and contributing positively in the way they deem fit to to celebrate and remember Billy McNeil. And as we know, we went on to the game Celtic against Kilmarnock. Mm-hmm. We've spoken about it already. I still can't quite believe it. Celtic score with uh, 67 minutes on the clock. I've heard a lot of people saying, oh, technically it was actually the 68th minute. Well, I'll have you know that technically Celtic won the (laughs) European Cup in the 68th year of the 20th century. So how about that? So it was was right. It was Celtic's number five. And and for me, not just the fact... You just get some right arseholes, don't you? Jesus Christ. I know, I know. But Paul's not that bad. Uh, (laughs) But it was... It was uh, not just the fact it was number five for me. The thing that stood out for me was just... (laughs) <laughs> the, this this is where I get a wee bit cra- crazy about the whole thing because I'm the same as, as you guys I think I, I don't believe too heavily in you know things happening for a reasons and fate and stuff like that but when you take into account the fact that Celtic I don't think I've scored a header never mind a towering header <laughs> like that for two years something like that 
And this comes along and Celtic's number five scores the most Billy McNeil-like header. Like, if you could look at that goal and go, who does that remind you of? And you put it against all of Billy McNeil's goals. That was what it was. In the 67th minute, or the 67 minutes of the clock, that's written in the stars, guys. Come on. On, on Friday night, um, I was over with my dad and, and that he stays in Aaron and we were talking about the game coming up and we were talking about McNeil and, and various things and, and I did say to him I said it would be quite um quite brilliant if one if one of the centre halves had scored scored a goal. And we both discussed it we thought, oh, maybe it'd be worth looking at that and putting a couple of quid on at the bookies. And Oh, it's always got to come back to the, the bookies. One away, the one that got away. The Paul. one that got away. <laughs> and to be fair I've got a witness this time so um, my dad will be listening. He, he he did we did have this conversation. Okay. Um, but I I don't know what it was about that the goal. Um, I I I don't even think I celebrated the goal. I I just kind of took can stock of what had what had happened and, and it's, it's not like week. it's not like Josefine Seminovich is you know, Henrik Larsson either. It's not like he scored many Celtic goals. I, I think, think he scored only... two goals prior to yeah, that, and just... they were both in your city. Yeah, they were both against the Dundee and Dundee United and. Um, so yeah, that was only his third set ago, and he's been here for a few years now. So, I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's really, it's really quite ridiculous. I know I kind of, I don't want to repeat myself because I kind of summed up at the start, but it was otherworldly. I mean, that's what it was. And like I say, everyone in the stadium, everyone who was watching that, and everyone will remember that for the rest of their lives. It's a, it's a goal that will go down in folklore. Josef Smirnovich could leave the club tomorrow in disgrace, and he would be remembered for that goal. He'd remember, be remembered as some sort of hero for that goal. I don't I, I don't want to interrupt Paul, so you can continue what you're saying. But I just no, no. It, it was interesting because we were just talking about that, and I know we're I'm slightly harking back, but um, we were talking about Billy McNeil and and what he did as a player and stuff like that. My dad kind of grew up. Um, he was five, I think, when when Celtic won the European Cup, and he says he remembers um, back when when Celtic used to go to Simo Hydro all the time, and it, I think it was McNeil's first or second season as manager, where um, him and his mate. Donny, who was his best man at his wedding, had cycled up to, to the Simo Hydro to see if they could get a glimpse of the Celtic players like they, they sometimes did. And they managed to sneak in to use the toilet because it was it, and back in that day it was, it was pretty posh place to go and, and two young guys for Sockets weren't gonna gonna walk in through the front door. So they managed to sneak in the toilet and um they stood they opened the doors and, and went to, to stand at the cube at the urinal and none other than the big man was standing there beside them. And my dad was telling me this, and I was like, aye, right, aye, you're, you're at it here. And he goes, no, honestly, because um, Donny, um, is Donny McMillan, the, the, from the famous boxing, McMillan uh, boxing family, and, and his grandson, uh, Dean, was one of the guys who was involved with the, the Bobby Lennox statue campaign. And, and Donny, the senior, the he's, he's now in his 70s, and, and he suffers with the, he, for the same d- disease as Billy McNeil. He's got dementia, but he was there in Lisbon, and he was always uh, kind of at Billy McNeil's side because he was, he was seen as a bit of a hard man, and um, Billy McNeil always recognised him for that. And when, when they were in the toilet talking to, to Billy McNeil, they kind of said, oh, Mr McNeil, you know my dad? And, and Donnie had said, oh, who? And had asked him, who's your dad? And he goes, oh, Donnie McMillan. He goes, oh, I don't just know him. He's, he's one of my good mates. And... Even though my dad said he'll never forget it, he walked out the toilet and Billy McNeil bought them both a a, a bottle of coke and a and a packet of crisps. <laughs> I don't know why the, why that it's is. It, it's it's just such a, a trivial thing. But he said it's lived with him for it was fifty years ago, you know, no, forty years ago, and it's lived with him ever since. And it's one of the best memories of, of, of the club. It's just That's superb. Good. Um, and 
obviously going away from the match completely there, but um, we were talking about the match and how how going into this game, and I don't know if it was just me, I just thought there's not a chance in hell that we are not going to win this game. We we had to win that game, and even watching it, looking at how we were kind of struggling to, to break down Kilmarnock and all that kind of stuff, there was no way we were we weren't getting three points on that day, and and obviously it came came to be in in such brilliant fashion. Right on to the the game itself. Um, well, just before that, sorry, John. I mean, Jozo, I know he was quoted, and you sent us something to do with uh, his quotes before the game, saying that he'd love to score a header and he'd he'd love to do it with wearing a number five and all that kind of stuff and, and that was just truly magical the fact that happened and then the way he acted after the game as well you know giving the shirt to the McNeil family and that wonderful photo of him next to, to Billy's wife Liz yeah he donated his shirt for anyone who isn't aware I mean that's just magic and like you say he called it before the game so that's why that's why I just think he kind of rose to the occasion of that but he said that he wanted to score and he, he said that every time he's going to go up for a corner he's going to feel <laughs> You know he's gonna feel the legacy of Billy McNeil on his shoulders almost because he wears the number five, and for it to happen like that, I mean he called the shot and he delivered, and he's a hero. He's a hero of mine now. I mean, uh, there's question marks about his his ability <laughs> to play to play well over the course of an entire season, but for that goal alone, I'll be forever grateful to Josef Smenovic. It was un- unreal. It was other worldly. That's how I'm gonna describe it. Right onto the game now. I know you wanted to touch on his partnership with Christopher yeah. Iyer mm-hmm. um, and and the fact that you believe certainly judging from your tweets earlier on that uh, mm. this is one of the positives of the Neil Lennon tenure so far well yeah I mean it's kind of undeniable isn't it I mean when you consider I mean a lot of a lot's obviously been said about our attacking problems under Neil Lennon and, and those are totally fair enough points I'm not going to argue against them but if you look at how we've defended it's been pretty good for the for the 10 games so far we've conceded two goals and eight there's been eight games that have been clean sheets and Ayer and Simunovic have been at the heart of that, really. And I think it's a, a defensive partnership that's arriving at the perfect time. And like I just said, I mean, there's obvious, obvious question marks about Simunovic's ability to do that consistently over an entire campaign, purely for fitness reasons alone and the fact that he's, he doesn't get on well with artificial pitches. I'm not suggesting that we don't need to sign a defender or two in the summer transfer window. Far from it, I actually still think that that's our priority position regardless of what Neil Lennon says about strikers. But I think that having that partnership kind of takes the pressure off us a little bit heading into the summer. And it's probably the reason that... I know there's been injuries to Bayata and Benkovic, etc. But it's probably the, one of the reasons they've been so relied upon as well is because we need players ready and able to go for the upcoming summer qualifiers. And with Bayata and Benkovic away, I think just having a, a kind of ready forged partnership with two players who are confident, playing well comfortable with each other and eager to impress our Celtic. I think that bodes well for the summer and the initial stages anyway. And then we can sign a defender to that can compete with places for them. But I'm pretty happy with both of them right now. And I think it's a, it's the most hopeful partnership or the ho- most hopeful duo in the team right now for me. They still give me the heebie-jeebies, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, I think they're good players. I think they've been playing really well. I think they were two of our best players yesterday again. I know Ayer got caught with the ball at one point, but you recovered with a well-timed tackle. That, that was the A, the worst bit of defender I've ever seen, <laughs> and also B, the greatest bit of defender I've ever seen in the space of, I don't know, about two seconds. I mean, like I say, I'm not suggesting that they're the answer. I'm not suggesting that at all. I just think that our defensive record over the last couple of months under Lennon has been 
exceptionally good. And I don't think you can dismiss it too much. And I think those two players have played, played a big part in that. So John's touching on the centre-backs there. I know you wanted to talk about the full-backs, Paul. Aye, indeed. Um, just, I know that the last few weeks I've kind of had a um, a newfound liking for, for Mikael Lustig and and I think he's a gear he's come in and done fine in terms of what he's he's managed to do because he's been slotting in for, for Tierney while he's obviously struggling with an injury. But I think looking at the two players, the age of them, and then looking at the bench and thinking, right, what have we got in terms of of defenders who are going to play at right and left back? And we, we don't have much, and I think that's an issue. Um, Lustig was was decent again. I thought he was he was getting up well. Um, Izagiri was linking in fine with, with Sinclair, but if what happens if, if we get a really bad challenge or one of them takes a, a tumble or or a stretch he's too far because the, these guys are are getting towards the twilight of their career and and. Uh, maybe a cliche to say, but they'd be more prone to, to, to injuries that they wouldn't have got when they were younger. So, do you want Tolian to come in? No, probably not. No, he's, he's definitely done, not. He's done no, he's about, he's... He's next to nothing. He's sitting mm. on the bench there as a backup and a backup only. He knows, he's, well, I would think he would know in his own mind, he's not going to get minutes unless something happens to Lustig. And then you look at the left-back replacement, who else have we got there apart from Johnny Hayes? And Johnny Hayes has been playing further up the pitch. So, I think it's a real head-scratcher and we need to look at that seriously. The defence as a whole has been really good under Neil Lennon and everybody has been chipping in and doing their bit. But I think from we're starting a new campaign when we need to go to somewhere in Europe and we've got these qualifiers coming up, it's going to be it's going to be difficult. Not And, and it's, it's not the fact that we're at a stage where we need a replacement. We need more than one for each position. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's not a nice situation to be in. Just the amount of games that Tierney's played over the last few years, I mean, that he admits himself that the one of the big reasons why he's had such an injury absence this year is basically because he's been overplayed. It's been a complete mismanagement of the squad. And I think that is something that Stevie touched on last week during last week's podcast, which somehow turned into the Tuesday night edition of Sports Sound. But <laughs> when, he, when he were actually talking about Celtic, he's made the point that Tierney can't go on playing 50-60 games a season. It's just not feasible. And I think that I've been pretty neutral in the whole Lennon thing, as listeners will probably be aware if you've been listening week to week. Like, I'm pretty neutral in the Lennon thing. I'm not that up or down whether he gets or not because I think that there's positives and negatives to it. And if we don't go for a big-name manager, then who else is out there, really? But I think one thing that did annoy me about Lennon this weekend was when he bizarrely claimed that the striking positions are priority for the summer transfer window. He said if he's going to be the manager, striker would be the position that he looks at. And I'm just sitting there going, what are you on about? Because we've got, we're hanging on by a thread in that defence. When Bayata yeah. and Benkovic go, we've got Tierney, and I mean, as a year is going as well, we've got Tierney, Simunovic, Ayer, and Lustig's not even, Lustig's not even got a contract yet. It's not been announced that he's staying either. So we've basically got three defenders. I mean that's just not feasible. The defense is a real pri- the defense is the priority. The defense is the be all and end all this summer. And I don't care what anyone says about us struggling creatively and you know strikers etc. We do need a striker because Wea and Burke are away as well. But when you look at that defense, Paul's spot on. The lack of cover at that uh, right and left back is frightening. It's frightening, and something somebody needs to take control of that situation. Someone involved in the recruitment process needs to recognize that problem because. That is a, just a ticking time bomb waiting to happen, and it has been for about three years. 
Yeah, I know, I know the club are becoming increasingly worried by the situation with uh, a certain left-back as well and, and the fact that this injury seems to keep reoccurring and I know that they're trying to find a solution to it. So that's certainly one that you'd like to get cover on, on that side and, and at right-back as well because, as you say, we're very much down to the bare bones. Uh, right, I'm going to slaughter a Scot and I'm going to praise a Scot. What one should I do first? Hmm. Well, if you're the way to slaughter Scott Sinclair, I've got another thing coming. But you, you, <laughs> So I think you should start by Bain, so by that I finish my cider. Right. <laughs> right, Scott Bain. Some people are still unsold on this guy and and they're saying that he's perhaps not the answer going forward. So I'll, I'll just kind of... I'll just get rid of all those arguments in, over the next minute or so with some stats because I always like stats to back it up. Uh, so as we know, he replaced Craig Gordon at the start of 2019. Since then, he's actually played every single minute of every game for both club and country, which is incredible when you think of where he was, what, five months ago, not starting for either. So that means that he's played 19 domestic matches for Celtic uh, and kept clean sheets in 16 of them. So he's conceded just three goals in over 1,800 minutes of football since coming in for Celtic, domestically at least. And when you consider that, you know, those three goals, one of them was a penalty at Tynecastle, not his fault. One was that cheating Bassa from Motherwell that scored. That wasn't his fault. He's really only conceded one. It's remarkable to, yeah, to look at well. the, the fact he's had 19 games and kept 16 clean sheets. And I feel that it's something that is going under the radar a little bit. I mean, I know a lot of people will point to that and maybe say that it's more the defence or it's just as much the defence, but I think Scott Bain deserves huge credit. When you look at those games we had in December, the defeat, lost two at Hibs, one at Ibrooks, lost three goals at Aberdeen. And the fact that he's come in and he's not lost more than one goal in any domestic match. I know Valencia are a different proposition. I know mm-hmm. ship three over in Kazakhstan for Scotland, but I mean, that, that's kind of nothing to do with us. And I think he deserves huge credit, but not just only his clean sheets. I think his distribution, especially with his hands yesterday, was absolutely brilliant and really helped us up the pitch at certain points where we were really looking to pen Aberdeen in and, you know, counter quickly because it's difficult a lot of times when, when you play against teams like that and, and fair enough, come on, it did have a little bit of a goal because they're a half-decent team. So when they come forward, we really need to look to break quickly and the amount of times when it was Craig Gordon in goal and, you know, it was pedestrian and he was rolling the ball out and he really wasn't getting the team going, whereas I thought Scott Bain was the absolute opposite of that uh, for Celtic yesterday. And for me... He's just about as good a goalkeeper as, and certainly as reliable a goalkeeper as we're going to get at Celtic at the moment. I don't think he's of the calibre of Arthur Boric or Fraser Forster or anyone like that, but I think those two in many ways were, well, not one-offs, but they were two-offs. And I think that for Celtic right now, where we are, I think Scott Bain's about as good as we can get. I mean, I'd be happy if he was a number one next season. I know people have their reservations about him, but he's not put a fit wrong. You can only judge you know, what he's contributed to Celtic, and he's he's not really done much wrong, has he? So... I'm in, I'm in your boat on that one. And you may well be in my boat for this one as well. Why is Scott Sinclair still playing matches for Celtic? He's... What? <laughs> he's off, he's offered us absolutely nothing. Uh, what for, wait, uh, what is this myth <laughs> that he's offered us nothing? What is this? Are you just ignoring his 17 goals this season? Well, at the start of the season he scored 17 goals. He's not scored a single goal since Neil Lennon came in. Why is he starting on the left-hand side when we've got a player? How many games has he played since Lennon came in? He's been in and out of the team. He started about six. 
and he's played pretty much all of them as, as subs. But I mean, the point I would make is Timothy Weir, player for some reason, is getting no opportunity. He's a better option than Scott no, Sinclair. You guys can't seriously sit there and say he's we, not a better we, option. Where's a way back to Paris Saint Germain in three games? We can't be. In, what's the point in investing time in that guy? I know he was there on loan. He came in under Brendan Rodgers with hopeful enthusiasm. I know he's got talent, but I just don't see the point in putting any of our eggs in Tim, Timo Weir's basket right now. I'm a fan I just of feel player. it's a massive missed opportunity with Timothy Weir. I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, surely if we were playing him, there'd be an option to get him back next year. I just feel Scott Sinclair, I mean, yesterday's performance, diabolical. What did he offer us yesterday? But, but if you want to argue that uh, Scott Sinclair in this team right now isn't performing well, then I would agree with you. But I would also say that that's partly due to the fact that we seem to have abandoned passing the ball in the final third and reverted to just punting into the ball punting the ball into the box from the 25-yard line. I mean, that's... I mean, what's Scott Sinclair meant to do with that? He's hardly a renowned crosser of the ball, is he? And he's hardly someone who's going to be getting on the end of headers either. So he's kind of lost in this team. I agree with you with that. But I just don't think much of it is to do with Scott Sinclair's fault. I think when Scott Sinclair's playing well and had adapted his role into being something of a poacher for us, I thought he was performing exceptionally well before Brendan Rodgers left. And so I think it's a little bit harsh to be writing him off, you know, 10 games down the line because Lennon's come in and basically altered the way we play on the flanks. There's a reason Johnny Hayes has been more impactful in Neil Lennon's team recently than Scott Sinclair, and it's simply because he's more suited to playing as an out-and-out winger on the flank. And that's just not Scott Sinclair's game, and I don't think it's ever going to be. So I agree with you in the respect that he's not been playing well recently and perhaps playing him as redundant, but I don't think it's that much of an indication of Scott Sinclair's ability, to be quite honest. I just get infuriated watching him the fact that know, he seems to he just doesn't want to take a man on anymore and he was so good in his, his early stages at taking men on and he was frightened and it may just be that defenders have sussed him out and they know to show him onto a certain foot or they know to you know show him onto the wing because he's always looking to cut in on that right foot but he just doesn't do it for me and I, I mean I've got to the stage where I'd rather see Johnny Hayes play but I just can't understand I just feel it's a, an absolutely mass missed sorry a missed opportunity uh, when you take into account the way Timothy Weir started and that promise he showed that basically Lennon's not played him at all. He played him one game against St Mirren and he was probably our best player that night. He scored a really good header. He was really running at players. I know it was St Mirren, but I would just love to see this guy giving a run of games and for whatever reason, Lennon doesn't want to do. And it's just, it's one of the many baffling things I'm finding about Neil Lennon at the moment. Um, mm. But I suppose, uh, kind of one final thing, and I'm wary we've been talking for a long time in the show today, but... One kind of thing we wanted to talk about, there's been a lot of hysteria, certainly we're pretty much since Neil Lennon came in and certainly after the first week it, it, it's kind of ramped up a little bit and a lot of fans panicking yesterday at 0-0 after you know, 50-55 minutes, Paul, and there's been a lot of discussion over whether Neil Lennon's the right man, of course, that's all the, well, the discussion's basically been centred around whether Neil Lennon's going to be there next year. Are fans over the top in their criticism of Celtic and Neil Lennon at the moment? In, in, in a word, yes, for me. I just think there is a hype around... People being, are losing their bloody mind. Yeah, a hype around being able to criticise this team because there's been three nil-nils. And I'm not going to single you out, Hamish, but you've been guilty of it as well. Where <laughs> the fact of... <laughs> we, we, we've we've done three games now, right? But I, I still I, I can't, for the life of me, think why, right? We're 0-0 with 40 minutes to go in a game and people are deciding that 
Lennon should not be getting the job. He is not doing a good job. The players are, are shite. We are struggling. We don't deserve to be where we are. All this kind of stuff that people are hanging out with. We are a team that plays from minute one to minute 90 and, and we can score goals at any point in that. And we've seen it over the last 15 years that we've struggled to break teams down. We're not going to win every game 4, 5 and 6, nothing. I know we enjoyed a great couple of seasons where we scored loads and loads of goals. But there's always going to be times that are tough. This is towards the end of a season where we've played 50-odd games. These players are tired. They're mentally and physically exhausted. They need help. They, they, yeah. they, they, they've won both domestic trophies. Well, they've won one domestic trophy. They're on the brink of another and they've got a cup final to come. Can you not excuse these guys for having 10 minutes where they're maybe not look as if they're the, the world beaters? that We know they are, but I, I just cannot get into the, the mindset of now... There's 40 minutes to go in this game against Kilmarnock. We are we are now now. If we drop points again, oh, oh, what's going to happen with 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 Rangers and what's going to happen with the league title? Things like that just I just can't get round to to getting on board with. It's it's a thing that happens in football. Points are going to be dropped. Losing your mind over a nil nil against Livingston is not going to get you anywhere in life. I don't think it's it's just one of these things where you you need to brush it under the carpet. Forget about it. Move on to the next game. Because we do now know we, we Hibs, a good team who've been doing well. We do now know we Livingston. But sandwiched in between that, we absolutely slaughtered Aberdeen and got to another Scottish Cup final. If, if we're stuttering towards a title, I'd rather be stuttering towards a title than not winning a title at all. Yeah. We, we can I mean, have I've these got, conversations I'm not, I'm not afterwards. That. But I just, I just can't get on board with this constant barrage of abuse for these players after all they've done this quite a, quite a rant I'm not doubting that at all I mean if we, we lay the facts out the Celtic have played 10 games since Neil Lennon came back in there's been 7 wins in those 3 nil nil draws you talked about so unbeaten goals. then unbeaten in 10 games yeah well, yeah. so they scored, <laughs> right Paul we've scored 13 goals and conceded 2 but I mean for me and I mean I'll, I'll lay my, my cards on the table kind of straight away I've been quite critical of the performances I don't think I've been quite in that category you just described there of people wanting Lennon out and all that kind of thing for me at the moment winning is probably about all we can ask for a Celtic and Lennon's certainly doing that and if he wins a treble then we can celebrate that and then kind of sort out the bigger issues in the summer for me this is a team that's underperforming at the moment performance wise um in many ways, I think it would probably have been foolish to look at Neil Lennon and, and think he was going to continue things the way Brendan Rodgers had mm. because when we came in at the, the start of the year, there was a lot of good performances, a lot of big wins, and I think that's kind of been difficult for Lennon to continue. And the bare facts of the matter are that Neil Lennon isn't as good a manager as Brendan Rodgers. So straight away, when you add into the fact that they're not his players as well, you, you were going to see a bit of a you know a, a kind of decline in the, the performances of Celtic. But I think the fact we're winning is good enough. But I can totally see where a lot of the criticism, not to the the kind of the strength where it's talking about Lennon not getting the job and he should be sacked if we don't beat Kelly and stuff like that. That that's crazy. But for me, I can see where a lot of the I mean, criticism's coming for. We've barely put a good performance together in the time he's been here. We've had that one good mm-hmm. victory against Aberdeen and everything else has been pretty diabolical we're, we're performance doing better, wise. We're doing better in this run under Lennon than we did in the first half of the season under Brendan Rodgers. I mean, let's not forget, we we played but pretty I, well I would in like six it to matches the... after the winter break. Well, we're hardly tearing up yeah. the Scottish division, you know what I mean? We scored, we had a few good victories under our belt and we turned the corner after a really, really rubbish first half of the season. If you compare it what Brendan Rodgers did since Christmas for those probably similar amount of games that Lennon's had, probably about 10 each. Yeah. Le- but 
the, the, the team is certainly underperforming at the moment. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. But I, would also, I think that's where a lot of the criticism comes from. But I would also say that that's also a sign of this team coming to the end of its cycle. A team that badly needs some fresh ideas and some help in this upcoming body transfer yeah. window. I mean, Definitely. this team's on its last legs, I feel like. And and the fact that these players have been playing 50, 60 games a season and they've won every single domestic trophy that's come their way and they've dominated the opposition apart from one derby against Rangers. I know the performances haven't really been good enough. I'm not really excusing them the results. I mean, the, the the match against Aberdeen was dire. Same against Livingston, same against Hibs. They were really poor matches of football, and the team were really pretty awful in them. But I'm I'm honestly not laying that at the door of Neil Lennon. I just think those results were just as likely under Brendan Rodgers. I mean, if you if you look at the evidence of the last mm-hmm. two seasons at Celtic, the amount of matches we've drawn and the amount of poor performances we've put in, I mean, they might not have been nil nils, but that's only because we'd conceded at the other end. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I get Fair enough. your point. No, I mean, I get your point. I understand. I I agree with you in in some respect. Is Neil Lennon shouldn't be immune from a from criticism, but I just feel like everyone's gone a bit daft. Everyone's gone daft, and they've kind of lost the plot. It's like you know what it's like. It's like when you're at school, and your teacher goes off sick, and a supply teacher comes in, and you just act like an arsehole just because you can get away with it. I feel like that's what people are doing now. <laughs> What, the players? No, well, the players and the fans. I just feel like it's a little <laughs> bit of that. It's just got the interim... The concept of an interim manager doesn't really work in football. Let's be honest. The players need to be working towards a shared goal. And at the moment, that shared goal is the two titles at the end of the season. It's not something Neil Lennon's bestowed upon them or anything else. It's just basically about getting over the line. And that's why I'm not going to blame all on Neil Lennon. Or, I mean, he has made mistakes and... And like I said, the crossing thing is a real example of that. I mean, I said earlier that I'm tired of all these crosses going into the, the box without really much effect. And there's a Twitter account called Fitband Scotland who kind of looks at the stats. He's one of these analytic types. I mean, there's an interesting couple of tweets here. He said, in Lennon's post-match interview, he stated that he hasn't changed the system, but he's tweaked it to encourage more crosses. He isn't kidding. Celtic have gone from 8.7 high crosses per game to 15.9. Despite the increase, Celtic have created 2.1 shots per game from crosses under Lennon, which was exactly the same under Rodgers. They seem to have replaced quality with quantity. So we're basically yeah. getting the same output... Chucking stuff in. You were getting the same output from crosses as we were getting under Rodgers, despite doubling the number of them. I mean, that's a real problem, and Lennon seems to think that's the answer. That is a real problem and a direct criticism of Lennon that I can get behind. But I'm with Paul. There's just a real panicky element about the club just now that people just need to... People just need to get a grip a bit for me. And I'm, I'm not saying that's of you, Hamish. I'm not saying that of you at all. Oh, no, I don't know that at all because I'm not of that persuasion. Yeah, but there's definitely an element of that, I feel. I mean, if you go onto Twitter during the game, it's basically carnage until we score a goal. And if we don't score another goal within 10 minutes, it's basically carnage again. That's how bad it is. Right, we're well over an hour and a half. We've probably accompanied folk to and from work at this stage. So uh, we'll try and wrap up uh, very shortly. We've got Aberdeen away this weekend. Um a point to win the title. Will we get the point, Paul, and a prediction, please? Yes, I think we'll get all three. Um, Aberdeen, are, their, their season's finished and we will make sure that we win the league and I think we'll win 3-1. We'll score some goals. Uh, I think we'll thump Aberdeen. I think we'll win 3-0. Uh, and I think we'll win the league in style. Uh, I think we'll draw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After all that... 
after but the thing about it is I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna act like it's the end of the world if I do draw. That's my point. What's your score? One one. <laughs> I'm gonna say no no for a minute. <laughs> anyway, one one would be good enough, we'd be champions. Touch wood, come on guys, it seems to have gone on long enough now, this time next week when we're sitting here doing podcast number 67, mm-hmm. we'll be celebrating eight in a row. Um, yeah, fascinating podcast, as I say, I've not quite had a chance to total up the predictions from the previous weeks because I've been so busy, kind of, as we all have, preparing for this podcast. We hope we've done our best uh, to, to kind, of, kind of talk about the, the Billy McNeil story and, and pay his uh, the legend, the, the tribute that we deserved or, or he certainly deserved. That is all from us, uh, the Grand Old Podcast in the week when Celtic lost another legend. Quite simply, there will never be another Billy McNeil. From all of us here on the podcast, goodbye and hail hail.